you know, in this world of merchants, they're going back and forth. What is motivating them? What is the currency when, you know, you're, all you're doing is trading goods for money back and forth, back and forth, and trying to make better trades? The merchant's crown ends up being this kind of jargon of their culture where as they're sitting around at night, the merchants are all comparing the trades they made. So the idea of it is both kind of showing that these people valorize the story and the and the um, the prize that comes with being able to burnish something's market value with a story. Because a walnut being traded for an elephant is impossible unless that walnut comes with a really good story. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. This episode is brought to you by the Habit Membership for Writers, of which I'm also the host. I'd love to see you there. You can find out more at thehabit.co. Besides being an author, Daniel Nayeri is a publisher, a pastry chef, and a raconteur. His book, Everything Sad is Untrue, a lightly fictionalized story of his growing up as an Iranian immigrant in Oklahoma, won all kinds of awards and with good reason. His new book is The Many Assassinations of Samir, The Seller of Dreams. Daniel Nayeri, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's a blast to be here. I, I think a lot of my listeners will know you from Everything Sad is Untrue, your autobiographical novel about junior high, basically. Uh, junior high and uh, Iran. And ju- junior high in Oklahoma and everything else in every every era of history in Iran. Yeah. I, I like it. You did it, you did it like the house that Jack built, you know, junior high, junior high in Iran, junior high and Iran <laughs> and true. the problems of a young Oklahoman. Yeah. Junior high Iran, the problems of a young Oklahoman and the, the, the <laughs> uh, you know, instability of memory. Do you think of yourself as a, as an Oklahoman? Absolutely. I'd yeah. be, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And honored to, I, I still, anytime someone says Oklahoma, for any reason, in any social setting, the <laughs> phrase that will come out of my mouth is greatest state in the union. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I adore Oklahoma. I, in a lot of ways, I feel like Oklahoma was the only place we could have landed. Um, and and it gave me it gave me the kinds of things that I think saved my life. So hmm. um, there are far more. The first book I ever wrote, unpublished, um, as yet <laughs> but is was just a love letter to Oklahoma that's probably why it was unpublished it needed something else but um, <laughs> but it yeah I, I think as I continue and there may be follow-up books about maybe later years you mm-hmm. start to see a character like you know the character in that book is certainly autobiographical it's me um I sometimes refer to him as the character so I can you know um, do surgery on him without getting yeah, too right. squeamish. Um, and that, you know, you'll see him start to be, to kind of get his wits about him more, kind of understand the culture more. And as a result, um, appreciate the beauty of it more and, and, mm. and take in, be able to actually understand what is on offer and what's on offer in Oklahoma is, is, uh, you know, uh, top tier in terms of uh, raising young men, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, what was that? Um, uh, the movie by, oh, good grief. Now I'm drawing a complete blank. The Citizen Kane. What's that? 
Citizen Kane. I was just guessing. <laughs> Not that one. No. no. Okay. Um, the guy who did the Tree of Life. Um, Malik. Terrence Malik. Terrence Malik, and he has the movie about the the Oklahoman who brings his French wife back to Oklahoma. Do you know this movie? I don't. But I should. To the Wonder is that movie. Yeah, why, and why so I know about this. Yeah, so some some yeah. this French woman moves to Oklahoma, and you're expecting it to be, you know, I came from France and now I'm stuck in Oklahoma, but she sort of comes alive in Oklahoma, yeah. and and there's a, I, I may be getting this movie wrong. Who knows? It's been a long time since I watched it, but but there's this great scene where she's at a um, at like a state fair, and, and uh-huh. she's just dazzled by the 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 whirling lights of the midway or whatever you call it. Yeah. So, I'm glad I didn't see it before I wrote the book. Cause that's basically the <laughs> except yeah. instead of French woman, uh, you yeah. know, Iranian child. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, well, I, I love to hear you talking about how much you love Oklahoma. Cause, cause I guess I was picturing, you know, here's a guy who's, who's living in middle America seems a little, um, you know, Oklahoma has a reputation being a little on the drab side for those. How dare people. you? I know. I, I'm sorry. Say, I, people, dumb, uh, <laughs> lazy screenwriters in yes. Hollywood will use Oklahoma as a punchline yep. for to imply whatever it is that they think is valuable, such as, well, it doesn't have the nowest and wowest clubs mm-hmm. where you can get whatever <laughs> hallucinogenics you're looking for, uh, I guess. And that makes it somehow yep. déclassé. But yeah. um, I, I, anytime I'm around that kind of lazy writing phrases like flyover. Yeah, right. Like that, Boy, yeah. that's a fast way to get me up in your face. Um, I don't. I, I noticed don't you like just it. got up in my face, and I was just no. citing other people. I wasn't even saying that for myself. Where are they? Who are these people? Show me their place. Um, how big a boy are they? Uh, and I and I I love you know one because it's like I, well, one I'll defend a place that has more good people than any other place I've ever met. So don't yeah. that's not I'm not I don't take that joke as anything other than an insult to people like coach Arndt, who were the greatest men I ever came across. Right. But also um, it just isn't, it's just fundamentally isn't that it's just, it's just such a wonderful. And, and as every state, I, I suspect, look, I adore Oklahoma. I think it's the greatest state in the union, <laughs> but if some guy who'd been raised in Michigan came up to me and said, Michigan is the greatest thing. I, I would respect yeah. and disagree, but nonetheless, so <laughs> well, it's not. Have to, I mean, yeah, right. I, the there's a kind of patriotism or or local pride sure. or whatever that allows me to appreciate somebody else's yeah local pride. Right. I love yeah. my mother because she's my mother. Right. Not because I, in any objective sense, I think she's the greatest woman in the history of the world. I mean. She feels like she me, but it's right. you. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is, you have hit on the exact right metaphor for that, right? Is the state and the mother, the, the, the this is my tribe. This is my, right. whatever it is. This is my state. I will treat it as if it is so precious and valuable that any harm to it should be defended and any and any value i can add to it is worth my time and what i'm doing is worthwhile because what i'm doing is benefiting this great thing these are good these are good ideas to have not because you're then so stupid that you think that the only place in the world that's good is oklahoma of course i don't i've been to you know uh, you know other wonderful places there's lots of them um 
But that is an important and right mental state to be in, in order to be someone who is maximally helpful to the people around them. Hmm. And when you wake up in the morning, like it's really, I mean, like I'm one of these people, you know, it's the book I just wrote is very much about, and a lot of the stories I write are about um, purpose, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, finding it's it's because it's something I struggle with a lot is like, what is the purpose? Like what, you know, I don't, I'm not someone who wakes up and bounds out of bed, like a little bunny. I I'm like, (laughs) all right, I got to do another one of these. Like, all right, fine. Like I, it's not, it's not, um, it's not easy. And, and so as a result, I like schema. I like mental habits that, help someone understand their purpose for the day. Even mm-hmm. if it's like, this is my purpose for the day. This is why I'm I'm a pastry chef is a recipe is your purpose for the next two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and people will be like, don't you love changing the recipe? And I'm like, I love writing a new recipe. But once I'm inside the recipe, I have a purpose and it's this and it's wonderful. And if, and you can be really, really good and deliver that same recipe with better and greater achievement of your purpose than somebody else. Um, and so there's work to be done. There's qualitatively differing work to be done. And this is good. This is a good thing to have for the next two hours uh, because the alternative is despair. The alternative to what mm-hmm. is despair? Purposelessness. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the alternative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The alternative to purpose. <laughs> Is despair. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Then what else is there? I mean, if you're without purpose, without your your waking, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, this is such a broad statement. It's just a truism. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for someone, for a brain like mine, it needs to drive somewhere or it will drive into a wall, right? Mm. Like you need to have a destination. So, um, are you talking about habits right now? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the, well, I'm talking about finding a, purpose let's let's define our terms then yeah if we're sort of uh need some of that so i think i think in this case i'm using the word um purpose broadly to mean um a reason to do and a something and and a direction to do it um so for example we were we began the topic by saying people can get into a habit of saying my mother is the greatest mother in the world and how can they hold that in the same at the same time if they're any intelligent at all they either have to say okay now anyone else who says oh but i have the best mother in the world um you are now at odds and mm-hmm. are in some form of conflict that can reach violence pretty quickly so we can either fight with everybody who disagrees that my mother is the best mother or i can be just intelligent enough to say i am saying something that is objectively not true but locally true right mm-hmm. so objectively my mother is not the greatest mother of all time and oklahoma is not the greatest state of all time or the greatest place it's just objectively not true it could be true, right? It very well could be if we do an assessment, but it's just too difficult for our brains. And we don't have the resources or the data to know whether Oklahoma in the year 1995 was the best place for a young man to land instead of, say, Athens <laughs> in the <ancient laughs> or, like, or Paris or whatever. Yeah, right. Okay, so we we can't be dumb enough to think we've said an objective statement. 
But then why make that statement? Why not live in the world of saying, well, it's whatever, it's good, it's this, it's that. And I was making the case that it's actually a useful statement. It's a useful statement to have to walk around saying, I think Oklahoma is the greatest state in the union. Um, and so then I began by saying, let's let us ask ourselves why. Why would a lie, if as we know it, be a helpful lie? And in this case, the answer is because it offers us a purpose. So if if I am someone who says um, Oklahoma is is the greatest state in the union, I am motivated to help it be so. I'm motivated to tell people that. And in order to tell people that, I need a second sentence. Oklahoma is the greatest state in the union. Why? Mm-hmm. And now I'm my job is to go gather information. And how do I gather information about Oklahoma's greatness? One, I invest myself in Oklahoma. I become a reporter of Oklahoma. There's a reporter actually in Oklahoma who's known for a, a segment called, is this a great state or what? And <laughs> his whole job, his whole job is to go and find like that one restaurant off the yeah. side of the highway. That's a shack, but has like the best ribs you've ever had in your life. Yeah. He's also the one who knows the history of the best watering holes in Oklahoma. He's the person who knows... Um, did you actually know that this movie was shot in Oklahoma? Did you know the uh, Brad Pitt is an Oklahoman? All the great, you know, did you know Jim Thorpe is an Oklahoman? Will Rogers is an Oklahoman. Okay. So first and foremost, I start to read and research the history of my state in order to give you lots of reasons why it's the greatest state. The next thing I do, of course, is try to add to that list. How? Mm-hmm. Well, I want that restaurant to do well. I don't want McDonald's to do well in Oklahoma. I want. Yeah. Ted's to do well in Oklahoma. I want Casino Domino to do well in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Casino Domino has the best cheese sauce on the planet. If you want cheese sauce, you're one of those people who sits down at a Mexican restaurant and loves the fact that they give you free salsa and some of them give you free cheese sauce instead of making you order it. Casino Domino in Oklahoma City, that's your spot. Not only am I no longer just a journalist of Oklahoma, I am an investor in Oklahoma mm-hmm. now because I want to add to that list. Third tier of purpose becomes not only am I a journalist, a documenter of its greatness, not only am I an investor of its greatness, but now I can be a creator in its greatness, which means, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I have friends there as, because I have got to go with to Casino Domino with somebody. (laughs) Uh, And now we start to build things there. You start to, you start to actually, you know, there's a bookstore coming in. Hey, did you know they need, they need, they need help. Let's go do it. All those three, those three things are all motivated by a notion and a desire to present oneself and one's community well. That purpose is derived from a concept that is fundamentally may may not be true. That doesn't. None of that matters. Is my point. And the so I was sort of shorthand with it, but all of those three things are born out of the that kind of statement. And so um, I find it helpful. <laughs> Chesterton said men didn't love Rome because they were great, because it was great. Rome became great because men loved her. So Good job, Chesterton. Yeah. Um, so you, I, I do feel like one thing you're doing in both of your books that we haven't even, we both we talk about Oklahoma, not the fact that you have a new book All called right. The Many Assassinations of Samir, The Seller of Dreams. You're not afraid of a long title, are you? Oh, I adore them. This was the short version. You should have considered a a, a subtitle um, (laughs) to go with that. Um, 
Well, actually, there was, there was something you said in 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 that book. So, actually, why, why don't you give this a give me a quick overview of, of what's what this book is about? Um, because sure. I love you got a, you got a big charlatan in there. I love that stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so it's set on the 11th century Silk Road, and the Silk Road was this network of um, trade routes uh, from far eastern China all the way to Baghdad. And um, it's a pretty inhospitable track of land. And and in it, it begins, as I said, in the 11th century with a young boy who is a monk at a monastery and has committed an accidental heresy. And so he's about to be stoned to death. Um, but enters this merchant, a portly huckster, who uh, swindles the monks and purchases the the young monk. And and what, that's how we get our little uh, odd couple, right? This young boy named Monkey, who is a very severe, very religious young man um, who's just now been uh, sold into the service of this, this merchant named Samir, who calls himself the seller of dreams and who is, uh, at least by in Monkey's perspective, a deeply unserious man. And so... Um, as they begin their their kind of troubled relationship, they don't like, uh, well, certainly Monkey doesn't like Samir. Um, they find out that all these villages that that Samir had been going uh, through swindling had uh, gotten pretty upset. And so they each hired a different assassin to come and kill him. And so what ensues is a chase along the Silk Road where this young boy, Monkey, has to keep saving his master's life from a Hessian berserker and a Mongolian gunner and uh, a uh, also the, the Roman legion and yeah. the Bedouin clan and it just keeps going and 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 in that um, comedic kind of action adventure you get the real story of how Monkey and Samir come to become a family and mm -hmm. how they come to understand sort of what what monkey calls the expensive and expansive nature of love. Mm. Um I love the way so you, you say in, in your author's note that <clears throat> that the uh, the silk road is the most magical place you can imagine. No um which you you make a good case for that in, in this book. Um and um uh I I love the way this the silk road itself provides so much of the material for this you know the, the the confluence of cultures, the the danger, the deserts, the you know, the, in so many ways, the the setting um, does a lot of the work, a lot of the heavy lifting for you, right? You, you don't you don't have to try that hard to get a variety of interesting characters. All you have to do <laughs> is just tell what was really on the Silk Road. You know? It's true. You know, one of the stats that really blew my mind when I was doing my research was. Um, the Silk Road in the 11th century had more religions, more languages spoken, more people groups, more ethnicities, um, more of everything than modern day Manhattan. Wow. And I found that mind blowing for a lot of reasons. But one of them is just that, you know, we presume that the modern city, especially modern New York, is going to be the most whatever, like it's the melting pot. It's the mm -hmm. most diverse. It's the salad bowl. It's all these phrases we use. And it is in some ways, but it was not. It did not have a monopoly on this. Now, concept. wait a minute. In, in Manhattan's defense, it's a lot smaller than the Silk Road. That's a fact and a lot less welcoming <laughs> uh, <laughs> than the desert. Uh, no, I, 
you're you're absolutely right. Um, I you know I think they, even you know if, even if you include sort of the environs, the 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 five boroughs, but you're you're right about that. I think. Um, but in speaking of, you know, I think the concept being, you know, along the the merchant routes that this is how we get the proliferation of religions across these massive mm -hmm. land masses, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, well, yeah. And and also, you know, I should also mention, and I've thought about this before in in Westerns, um, the mm -hmm. the American West is vast, but there are only certain roads. And right. people would run yeah. into each other. And so in, in the same way, uh, maybe the Silk Road, if you add up the real estate of the actual Silk Road, maybe it's not. <laughs> oh, I think it's still pretty vast. You're right. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, there was this, there's actually these um, four capitals where that that is what was happening. And, and it's sort of it begins in far eastern uh, China and what was then called Chang'an and now it's Xi'an. Um, and then it goes to Turfan in western China then Samarkand and modern Uzbekistan and Baghdad. And there's there's a lot of trading posts, a lot of caravanserais and things like that across the routes. But, you know, the big the big sort of epicenters are there. And you mm -hmm. see that each of them, like their economies grow. And, you know, basically like Xi'an's entire, like their base was silk. They, they mm -hmm. clearly were, you know, um, and they had a monopoly on that for a very, very long time. Turfan was a set in just like one of the most fertile areas in the, on the planet. And it's just a garden capital. It mm. had um, more dried fruits. It's actually to this day, it's shocking. If you, if you watch any documentaries on Turfan or Samarkand, um, there's just the like 17 varieties of raisins, you know, will be <laughs> really? on sale in this market. And it'll just be like, okay, I, I'm sorry to admit, I didn't realize there were 17 varieties. <laughs> some of some of them are gigantic, you know, and, just all kinds of you know the dried dried every kind of fruit um and and meats and stuff and so you look at that and you go golly that was that was the costco of its day right <laughs> it's just a yeah. gigantic food center which you know um how far hard, is it hard, by hard. the way from xian to to baghdad how far that's a good question uh by miles um i'd have to look that up uh that i mean it's quite literally you know from all of Asia, the asia the continent asia. right yeah it's because right. Xi'an is almost on the coast of china mm -hmm. on that side and then you're getting all the way to iraq um uh, so yeah it's, uh, it's, it's it's a while <laughs> all right so and i guess i had considered the variety of life on the silk road before but what I hadn't really given much thought to was layered on top of that is the, you know, the, the sort of built-in stories of, of the Silk Road. Layered on top of that is the fact that these merchants, their job was storytelling. Yeah, you know, uh -huh. the the um, you make it very clear, especially in the case of Samir, that everything's based on his ability to spin a story. Right, um, and he's just an exaggerated. And, and metastasized version of what's true of all the merchants on the Silk Road, which is I've, I've got a story to tell, hopefully an honest story, in the case of Samir, rarely an honest story about this product and why you should, you know, uh, right. why we should we should do business. Um, and I loved, I, I just loved that the complex, I mean, the stories within the stories within the stories, which you, you do this in Everything Sad is Untrue, and you also do it in, in this book too, um, the ways that, somebody starts telling a story and then there's a story inside that story. And there may be another one inside of that. Um, 
just just so richly textured. I, I I just love the way the way you do that. And it is there something specifically um, Eastern about that that way of doing things, that way of talking. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, in terms of like when you just study narratology and how that works, I mean, a lot of times the term for that is the Chinese box narrative or the Arabian Nights narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and they're fundamentally the same. Uh, and the Chinese box narrative sort of refers to the concept of, you know, there's the box and then inside that is another box and inside that is another mm -hmm. box, kind of like the babushka dolls, you know, yeah. nesting dolls. Yeah. Those are all the kind of the visual metaphors people will use. But, uh, you know, the story, the way that stories are told in um, uh, in Iran certainly are are all. I mean, that's just the that's just the method. So in some ways, people will ask, like, "Are you going to do that again for your next book?" I'm like, "I'm that's it. That's that, like that. I'm gonna. That's how I tell stories. That's like, all you got. That's like asking, are you going to have a climax in your next movie?' And it's like, <laughs> yeah, probably. I'll probably end up having one. Uh, is that a problem? Um, so for me, that's just the way I think. I love it. I, I try to apply it in different ways and different contexts. I'm not trying. I don't like doing the same thing. It's not, I don't even consciously do it. It's just how a story becomes interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, so getting a chance to write a graphic novel, it, you know, the, one of the first things I'm going to do is try to make it ooh, juicy, the stuff I love. And the stuff I love is that kind of the the bravado and the panache of a storyteller, the Cyrano de Bergerac quality mm -hmm. of, you know, standing and delivering. And so I want the storyteller to be a character. I want often. Um, and then I like the, the, I love openings of stories and I love, I love the, you know, playing with them as objects. And so I want my characters to do that. And so they often end up doing that. The The moments where stories are being delivered are often the most high stakes. Um, why? Well, a police interrogation is one of those things. Uh, a trial like Grisham style is yeah. one of those things. Like we tell stories in our, you know, standing before the court of the King uh, mm -hmm. and, and Solomon's going to cut the baby. That's all like, we're all telling our stories. And so to me, those are also just happen to be the most um, high stakes, high tension, high drama kind of moments in life. So all that comes together. And I just adore it's telling stories that way. Um, I'll tell you, but as you said it, there was a moment I, I had an insight that may or may not be true. And I'll just sort of say it and we can decide afterward. Um, you know, I've been I've been reading and thinking a lot about the nature of how tea works in Iran. And like, you know, in, in Britain, of course, you have tea at breakfast and tea at four, you know, tea time. Mm -hmm. In Iran, um, there's a, you know, we have a samovar. A samovar is just like this uh, apparatus that sits on top of coals, or sometimes there's coals already, there's a space for them. And all it does is keep water hot at all times. It's just a big, beautiful brass or whatever. <clears throat> thing and it keeps water hot at all times and the reason for that is so that you can brew tea whenever someone comes over like mm -hmm. the minute you enter someone's house their job is to offer you tea and you have tea 10 minutes later um tea is had almost on the hour sometimes mm -hmm. um and certainly if you're even working even if you're in a place where you're you know you're working in an orchard in my grandfather's kind of house as i remember it um tea was something that was at breakfast then again, kind of at 11, then again at new, you know, at, at lunch. Like Hobbit tea. Very Hobbit tea. Yeah, exactly. And so stories have a serial nature because stories get interrupted a lot because you're telling the story around tea and then you've got to go do work. you got to go live your life or you got to do whatever. And then you reconvene around tea again. I wonder if that has something to do with it because often, um, obviously in the Arabian Nights, what's happening is a recursion of 
evenings, day interrupts. In fact, mm-hmm. every story in the Arabian Nights ends with, um, and the light of the rising sun entered the building or entered the window and Shahrazad lapsed into silence. Like she's interrupted by the sunlight. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, ser- this sort of serialized, broken up story within a story, characters going further down these, you know, um, Chinese boxes or yeah. however you want to call them, nesting. Um, this is all very natural to yeah. the way and the context the stories are yeah. told. It's not, I'm going to go into a theater for 90 minutes, be given an act one, an act two, and an act mm-hmm. three, and then like, wow, that was a spectacle. That's cool. And I, I love yeah. that as a as a Western mode. Or even I'm going to open a novel and read it from page one to you know page end. Um those aren't the ways you take in stories. And so I think I think the yeah. content changes as well. But also that those that story that's interrupted throughout the day, there's also a story of the day. Right? Exactly. Yeah. The day is a story, and then there these, yeah. Um, or, you know, there's a a boy in Oklahoma <laughs> sitting in a room around those stories with the with the kids who are, you know, doing their shenanigans. Sure. And um and then inside that boy's head, inside that box, are the, all these other stories of Iran, yeah. and and uh, and so this the idea of the story within the story is just that's just life. Also. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know if I were to evolve, and I'd, I'd like to evolve and try to like the kind of projects that scare me and intrigue me, and like a I would require greater skill to be able to pull off would be those kind of panoply of voices those ensemble kind of um moments where you're now sort of experiencing everyone's story as a semi-cacophonous but you know semi-euphonious um uh collection that would be that would be a real mm-hmm. I, I always i'm very intrigued by that it's a it would it's it would be like yeah you know people say um james joyce wanted to publish ulysses on a on a ring so that no one could tell you where the beginning was and where the end was. Uh, It strikes me as like that size of like uh, obnoxious to try to write one of those as, you know, kind of like deliver it straight and give some, and and I I wonder if people would just uh, grab their heads and scream and be like, (laughs) who's talking? As as you were talking about that, I I was thinking about this may be an opposite mode of storytelling. I don't know, but but the stories you see that have the same event told from different points mm-hmm. of view. Yeah, so, I love those. You know, whether that's Marilyn Robinson's books about Gilead, mm-hmm. same story over and over again, but told you know it's a very different story because it's told by different people. Exactly. Or even um, as I lay dying, you know, where each the each chapter has a different narrator yeah. telling. More or less the same story. Uh, oh, Fa- Faulkner did that. That I mean, so far that he's the he's the high watermark of that, I think. But um, <clears throat> but you yeah. I mean, the, but the kind of story you described is it is the thing Faulkner did in As I Lay Dying the kind of thing you're talking about? Or are you talking about something else? That's that would be one one iteration of it. But also, mm-hmm. like Spoon River Anthology would be another iteration where it's not everybody telling the same story, but in that it's a poetry collection where you're sort of reading the epitaph of everyone in town. You're just mm-hmm. you're yeah. going through, and it's a small little poem, and you're kind of you're experiencing their story. And I think that mm-hmm. what that means to everybody is different. That's how they present mm-hmm. it. But you start to also see the overlapping mm-hmm. ways their lives um, come together. There's a there's a modern version of that um in a different poetry collection that does it 
does it with with a little bit more um story spoon river anthology kind of um is is what's the word uh the, the poems are each i think no more than 15 lines and they you see the connective tissue but um it's sort of sparse whereas um david rakov wrote and i have to look up the uh the title because it's uh it's one of those impossible to remember titles uh, it's called love dishonor marry die cherish yeah. perish <laughs> which is all it, the whole thing's in verse isn't it the whole thing is in Rakovian couplets which are alexandrian couplets but i think rakov deserves to have um it's it's a lot of despairing lives it's not a happy book it's not mm -hmm. even a particularly um uh pleasant read but um but it is about all these lives sort of interconnecting and them telling their story and you really get to hear their voice um uh as as it goes i think i think you know as i lay dying a good example of mm -hmm. you know this version of one event multiple angles but then you also just get you know, all these lives intertangled all of their mm -hmm. perspectives um those those are you're right that they're they're sisters but they're different yeah yeah um okay um i want to talk about the idea of the merchant's crown <laughs> that's an idea that that you that's woven throughout um samir the yeah. many assassin the amen the many assassinations of samir the seller of dreams that's right i'm just i'm practicing i'm trying to get this title <laughs> right. um is the idea of the merchant's crown something that you invented yeah i mean as far as i know yeah, uh right. sure yeah i mean it's, it was a flight of fancy with me sitting in a chair but um you know who knows who knows to what extent uh, i didn't know terrence malick had already written my first book <laughs> um so uh no it's it is it is an idea and it came it was actually born out of you know as any writer you sit there and you're like what do these people want and i had in samir a character that in some ways is very much a, a letter to my dad. Um, mm. You know, my, my everything sad is very much a kind of me observing my mother. I got to observe her from cl close up. Um, and so I had a lot to say. I had, I had a good sense and, and I still do, you know, she's, she, I think there's a whole lot more to her than just that book, but um, uh, you know, I, I got to, I got to sort of catch all those details with my dad he he's he was from a little bit from further away and a little bit more of his persona was available to me than his person mm. and so um so is, in this i wanted to write i mean in some ways these are stand-ins right i mean i was clearly monkey i was a little boy who was very serious and he cared about principles and honor and and um and i sort of saw my dad as a man who was irreligious and unserious and um without without the ability to distinguish the truth from anything and so and i had this i had a very um legalistic kind of approach as, as a little kid i'm talking i was a serious little child <laughs> and so um and i think you know i think our uh with this um i wanted to kind of dive in a little bit and ask myself what is it that samir wanted because as you go through the book look i mean you you know as with any odd couple they each have to learn something right and and it's clear that monkey needed to learn um to to hold on a little more loosely um to understand to give a little bit more mercy to people mm -hmm. um even the conversation we had at the beginning of this right to like a young Daniel would never have said that phrase. He would have said, if it's objectively untrue that this place, then don't say it. 
<laughs> that would have been like, okay, all right. But if everybody knows it's objectively untrue, it's not like you're tricking anyone. No one's going to be like, oh my God. No, like, I had no idea. Really, truly, I had no idea. You've, yeah, I've like, let me. So if everybody knows, is that okay, little Daniel? And like, little Daniel would have been confused by that, right? Mm-hmm. The, what Monkey needs to learn is exactly that that there are times um, where you can be merciful. You don't have to be so much uh, a little uh, judge of the planet. Um, so what but what did Samir need to learn? And is was the question. What was his motivation? And and the merchant's crown was the phrase that came for that. Um it, it, put short, the idea was, you know, in this world of merchants, they're going back and forth. What is motivating them? What is the currency when you know you're all you're doing is trading goods for money back and forth, back and forth, and trying to make better trades? The merchant's crown ends up being this kind of jargon of their culture where as they're sitting around at night the merchants are all comparing the trades they made um and if you got some silk from xian and took it all the way to baghdad and got a good deal for it that's just market value like there's nothing impressive about that but if you manage to make a really lopsided trade right if you could get somebody to give you a bolt of silk for you know uh a, a bundle of you know sand eaten wool then yeah. wow that yeah. and so to them the merchant's crown becomes bigger and bigger and mythological like mm-hmm. it, it becomes like the fairy tale where you know the brave little tailor trades you know he, yeah. he trades in on his sash and becomes a king and you're like yeah. wow he just keeps trading up and yeah this, so the idea of it is both kind of showing that these people valorize the story and that and the um the prize that comes with being able to burnish something's market value with mm-hmm. a story because a walnut being traded for an elephant is impossible unless that walnut comes with a really good story yeah right? <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and so that and so in that sense that's where the merchant's crown comes from and mer- and that is what samir talks about is wanting and it's unclear at first when he's asking uh, at first, you know, he's sort of what monkey thinks he means is exactly what I just said. He thinks he wants to like paint some river stones gold and go trick an idiot uh, Emir out of yeah. his estate. Um, and and that is on its face what the merchant's crown looks like. But fundamentally, you start to kind of perceive and Samir even starts to learn it's um what you know what what else in this life we sacrifice ourselves for and what other lopsided trades we make in mm-hmm. or you know for the ones we love and so that that sort of yeah. starts to look more and more like the merchant's crown yeah yeah the, the he says early in the book that the merchant's crown is just greed dressed up as poetry <laughs> the monkey says that yeah monkey, yeah, the young monkey says that yeah that's right that's yeah. right <laughs> and uh and then he uh, it, but then, you know, at another point in the book, he says something along the lines of, <clears throat> we tell these stories and somehow they become true. That's right. If I'm, uh, I, that, that's a paraphrase. I don't know if I got it right, but. Yeah, yeah. Monkey, monkeys, you know, got clearly like you're watching him. Uh, you're, you're watching him take on quite a lot. This is, he's, he is the character coming of age. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, there's a lopsidedness to who's learning is certainly um, he's, he's learning a lot more. Yeah, and you say Oklahoma is the greatest state in the world, and and in in the utterance, it it becomes a little truer than it was. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. It, it, I mean, we don't have know. to talk about Oklahoma the whole time. <laughs> I've got a few more Oklahoma topics, but I I will resist. Um, the 
he also, it's interesting, when you talk about his development, at the same time he calls it greed dressed up as poetry, he calls he calls it a fool's religion. Mm-hmm. And then later decides, I mean, you better hope it's not a fool's religion since it's your job, right? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, that's, uh, that's funny. You should say that, but no, I, unfortunately I'm not, uh, I'm not too, um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not too hyped in the sense that I, you know, I do think it's in some ways foolishness. Um, hmm. and I, I have a question, probably this is one of those, like, I think about all the time is like, will there be libraries in heaven? Um, <laughs> the answer is like, no, they won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, hey, what do you talk? What do you mean? There's no libraries in heaven. What are you talking? This about? is a different podcast, my friend. We got it. We got to go in it. But yeah, I, I, I just finished writing a poem about that actually. But uh, yeah, there there can't be. Why? Why would there be? Hmm. It's not incumbent on me to populate heaven with deeply flawed and uh, un- unworthy objects. It's incumbent on you to tell me why they would. <laughs> Um, besides, who's gonna? Where's the Where's the publishing logo gonna go? Where's the I said? Is the ISBN still gonna be on the back? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we will schedule another podcast to talk about that. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Um, speaking of, we probably we're about to run out of time. Um, so I want to hear you talk about what I always ask people, and that is, who are the writers who make you want to write? <laughs> The writers who make me want to write are the ones who either have achieved one of two things perfectly, which is uh, um, innovation or perfection, you know, so refinement or revolution, right? So like Karen Russell is a level of refinement that could only have happened after after the like all these, like we've had generations of great writers, right? Jane Austen exists mm-hmm. and then and then you come to someone like Karen Russell and it's like, she can write a sentence more beautiful than possible up until the moment you've read it. <laughs> and you go, well, okay. And and you read a sentence like that and, and you just want to sit down and try to uh, look at a daylily and figure out how to express it as well as she would. Or, you know, I sit down and start writing sentences like it was as dark as. Um, that, you know, the sadness felt like I, I literally need to run exercises when Mm -hmm. I think about how good Karen Russell's refinement is. Um, and then you get somebody on the other side, you know, somebody who's not refining on the craft, but someone who's actually, you know, taking it over here and, and like, in some ways may not feel refined at all, but is sort of pushing at the boundary of what it even can do. Um, I think of Borges, I think of Calvino. Calvino is the one. I joke sometimes there are no writers. There's only Italo Calvino. Um, because what he was doing to novels and to storytelling was just breaking it. Um, and so, yeah, the short answer to your question, David Mitchell does that nowadays. Um, I th- every time he writes something, it's different. Um so yeah, Karen Russell, David Mitchell, Italo Calvino, top yeah. A one, uh, Borges, uh, goodness, um, those are those are some big names for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I also read in the comics world, like like art art and text at the same time. Mm-hmm. Those are so you know people who are kind of 
doing odd visualizations of text, all that kind of thing. So um, yeah, those get me excited. If somebody's really innovating or if somebody's really refining, then I'm really, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. They're doing. And that, that tends to be the case in a lot of craft, right? Like pastry, mm. you know, um, is in that space. There's a lot of, there's what people, sometimes what people will say, like, this is in the refinement stage of, of the craft is mm -hmm. like, we've sort of in, done all our innovating and now we're doing our refining. Um, you know, certainly like in the fifties and sixties, like that was the innovation era of film. And then you get to the, you have to jump to the nineties and you get the innovation era of like CG fundamentally mm -hmm. and like how Jurassic Park and Terminator two. So you get these like eras of innovation and then eras of refinement. Um, what does an era of innovation in pastry cooking, pa pastry baking look like? Well, most recently, so, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, um, food in general went through the fusion era uh -huh. where where just the ability to get ingredients um, create and also the the desire to look at cultures as they were sort of in integrating into one another and, and sort of crashing into each other. Um, you start to get fusions that were really innovative. So uh -huh. in the United States, and by the way, the United States, I think, benefited the most from that um, because pockets of enclaves of um immigrants right are coming and already you know looking at stuff that's happening locally and bringing themselves to it so you know um a lot of vietnamese people had moved to the to the new orleans area right because mm -hmm, the yeah. environment is similar so then vietnamese uh, creole cooking is yeah. awesome yeah grab it up if you can go yeah. go eat it um that kind of thing is it was happening in different places and certainly it's happening in like london and paris as well sure um, but you know, in the refinement side of pastry, when the Japan, you know, the Japanese uh pastry chefs again kind of in the aughts, and you know, um they were just in love with French pastry, right? French pastry clearly was, you know, they had established such an incredible baseline of like yeah. inno innovation and establishment of like, and so there it's incredible. Um, you know, Japanese traditional Japanese pastry and dessert doesn't have a lot of dairy in it. It's a lot of red mm -hmm. bean. It's a lot of matcha. It's a lot of mm -hmm. rice paste. Um, it's not dairy. It's not shortbread. It's not cream. It's not custard. So when that's going over in those Japanese, you know, what do they do? Well, without speaking too generally, the Japanese are very, very good at bringing an extreme amount of discipline and focus to a craft. They bring it to the French pastry and all of a sudden you start to see refinements on what people thought couldn't be refined. How are you going to refine yeah. a a like a creme brulee how are you gonna what is, that's done like yeah. how are you gonna refine a profiterole um mm -hmm. or a croissant um but they do and it's through sheer discipline and and sourcing and craft yeah. and now i mean if you were to say listen i have a million dollars and i want to eat the best french pastries on the planet paris might be a destination but tokyo should be a destination as huh. well and wow. that's a shocking piece of um, refinement, right? Where you yeah. say, are you telling me that the 10 best croissants I could get on the planet, uh, some of them might be outside of France? And the answer is, yeah, yeah they're in Japan. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right. If I don't arbitrarily end this, we're just going to, we can talk all day. We so started I, with Oklahoma and we ended with this pastry. <laughs> with, I love with it. Tokyo, I love it. French pastry. Yeah. So uh, I am arbitrarily ending this. Sure. Daniel Nairi. Goodbye. Thank you for being here. This has been great. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. I hope a lot of people read uh, read Samir. I, I love it. It's been an absolute pleasure having me. Thank you so much. I hope we can talk again sometime 
down the road. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.